Chase the baby, catch the pup. Bonk the head to shut it up. Bones be cracked, flesh be stewed. We be goblins, you be food. This is Save Versus Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are doing a setting spotlight. Specifically, we're talking about Galarian. Galarian? Galar- Galarian. Galarian. It, it's Galarian now. Okay, so, uh, Galarian is the core setting of the Pathfinder RPG. It was introduced before the actual Pathfinder RPG, and the very old material for Galarian was introduced during the 3.5 edition of D&D. It was based on the adventure paths that first appeared in Dungeon and Dragon magazine, but then were taken over by Paizo completely when those magazines went under. They created the setting for the adventure paths, and since then branched out into a full RPG. There are 24 adventure paths in the current edition of Pathfinder RPG, and 23 of them are either fully published or partially published to this day. There are also tons of splat books, some describing specific regions, others describing a concept like the cities of Galarian, or the dungeons of Galarian, or the mismatched monsters of Galarian, or the pirates of Galarian, or the prestige classes of Galarian. Just a gigantic list of material that expands on Galarian. Not to mention material about elves of Galarian, the people of different regions of Galarian, and that sort of thing. In addition to that, there are the Pathfinder Tales, which are stories set in Galarian. There are the Pathfinder comics, featuring the iconic characters of Pathfinder. There are the Pathfinder Society Adventures, which lets lower-level characters run around in this great big world. And most importantly, there's the Inner Sea World Guide, which completely describes this great area of a v- even vaster world. Beyond that, the Inner Sea being the core region of Pathfinder, there are also other regions of this expansive planet of Galarian, which is an Earth-sized planet. So there is a fantasy version of the East Asian countries, there's a fantasy version of the Americas, there's a fantasy version of Africa, there's a fantasy version of India, and a lot of these have been explored a little bit or had major references to them, but some of them still haven't been fleshed out to this day. And when I went to the Secrets of Galarian panel at Gen Con a few years back, I asked them specifically about Arcadia, which is the fantasy America, and Sarasan, which is uh, mentioned a few times in the material and is in the position of Australia on the Pathfinder world. And I was told that there are plans to look into Arcadia and start having material specifically set in Arcadia and have stuff from that portion of the world, but that Sarasan is kind of expected to stay terra incognito forever. It's basically this uh, blank slate in the Pathfinder world where a DM can put anything they want or need to exist in the Pathfinder world. I was told that One thing was that this does mean that there's not really a region with a specifically Australian Aboriginal culture, but a lot of that material has been distributed throughout the world. You'll notice that marsupials exist in the regular regions of the Pathfinder world with kangaroos in Pathfinder's equivalent of North Africa and thylacines in Pathfinder's equivalent of the Czech Republic. So these various regions still have things from 
a fantasy version of Australia, but I'm just I'm just gushing about the material. Let's let's get into what we specifically wanted to talk about. Now, John and I are really passionate about uh, Galarian as a setting, and we've picked out what we like to think are the highlights and why you might want to play in Galarian. The first we have is that it's a Mediterranean-style setting. Yeah, the Mediterranean Sea in our real world was a gigantic hub of trade and cultural exchange in the old world. It connected cultures that geographically had very little in common and would normally take a long time and go through several other cultures in order to connect. But instead, you could have people from France sailing directly to, for example, the Holy Lands in Israel, or people from Israel sailing to Egypt, or to Spain, or even up to the... uh, or, or even up to the northern lands. And when we think of cultural exchange, we have to think of the Mediterranean Sea. A great example of this in our real world is the fact that in Constantinople, which is in modern Turkey, there was actually a culture of Viking warriors who sailed all the way around through the Strait of Gibraltar in order to come to Constantinople and be the honor guard to the Basilius there. So when we think of the multicultural old world, we have to think of the Mediterranean Sea. And Pathfinder's version of the Mediterranean Sea, the Inner Sea, likewise links an enormous number of disparate regions that would not normally have anything to do with each other, but now are connected by the central hub. So what does this mean for your game? It means that in a Pathfinder game, you can have a game set in your standard fantasy setting. You can have a game set in fantasy Egypt. You can have a game set in the fantasy Caribbean. You can have a game where you go to the Far East. You can have a game where you can raise your own empire. You have a massively political game. And all of these could still be Pathfinder games. And that gives it this opportunity to have this active sort of interconnectivity. It's totally okay and absolutely within the bounds of the system to have a party that consists of a a noble samurai warrior, a rugged gunslinger, a eccentric alchemist, and a priest of a bizarre death cult from the far ends of the world. And that priest could be a catfolk, the samurai could be a... Uh, android, the alchemist could be a rat man. All of these are totally possible within the setting and the interconnectivity allows it all to make sense in the context of the setting. It's okay, for instance, to have laser guns in the Pathfinder world because there is a place that's overrun with alien technology. You could have laser pistols, power chainsaws like in Warhammer 40k, You could have guns, because Alkenstar is a low magic portion of Pathfinder's setting, and they have a gunworks there that ships guns to many parts of the Pathfinder world. So firearms exist in the Pathfinder world. One of the things about this active interconnectivity that's also really amazing is that in the adventure paths, you will often find little hints, little tidbits of other parts of the world. Say you're traveling along, you could meet a merchant from far off uh, Tianjia. Tianjia, I think it is. Tianjia, it's kind of the Chinese pronunciation. And that could just be a, a quick drop in the bucket in your campaign, but let you know that there is a bigger world. You can hear stories of the far off world wound, where there's a 
crusade against demons, but it might not actually affect your campaign at all. Another example is in the Kingmaker Adventure Path, one of the villains, Castruccio Irovetti, is carrying two magic items that are specifically mentioned that they're not actually magic, they're technological items he stole from Numeria. And the sidebar on this says, but if you don't want to include these technological items in your game, they can just be regular magic items. There's no reason they can't. This is just our canonical explanation of this. Which brings us to another point is despite this, it's still a granular setting. You're never forced to include material you don't want to include in your Pathfinder game. If, for example, you really don't like the idea of having guns in a fantasy setting, why would you have guns? You have magic. You can shoot people with magic missiles. Why have boomsticks? You don't have to play with guns. You do not have to have the gunslinger character class. Let's say you don't like the way that the alchemist plays. You can completely cut it. If you don't like the monk in your specific story, fine, say no monks. If you, like many people, think the summoner is a bit overpowered, it is. you can just nix the whole thing. And all of that still works and still plays as a Pathfinder game. Yeah, you don't have to acknowledge the existence of the gothic realms of Ustalav or the Vikings in the lands of the Lenorm kings in your specific game. They're part of the setting, and they're absolutely there if you want to use them, but you never really feel forced to include anything, because all of these regions are self-contained in a way that doesn't require them to be interconnected any more than what is absolutely necessary to give the setting its verisimilitude. A great example of this. A number of years back, I ran the Carrion Crown Adventure Path. And in that, it is a dark, gothic, whirlwind tour of this grand setting. You fight vampires, you fight werewolves, you deal with Deep Ones and the Mego, you are Frankenstein's lawyer. It's it's a really cool adventure. It, it really is. And in all of that, you do not have to worry about having demon slayers in your party because it's really close to the world when demons could appear at any time. Likewise, you don't have to have great knowledge of who the rune lords are. You don't you don't need to know that. And the players don't need to come in having all this encyclopedic knowledge of the setting. You can just start running the adventure and continue forward from there. And everything that you need will be included in the adventure path. Galarian does have a massively deep history in the setting. When it was published, they said that they really wanted to make it seem like the world itself was old and lived in. As a result, it has a 6,000-year history with specific events, characters, locations, empires, civilizations, all of this. The rise and fall of various civilizations dating back to the prehistory when serpent men ruled the world of Galarian and were eventually overthrown by the Aslanti people and all of these different events throughout its history that have helped shape the world. Now... The thing is, in many settings where there is like this vast history, what you end up seeing is a world that just is done being a world, that, that there's no ongoing events, that everything is ancient history and the player characters are focused on checking through that ancient history. 
And in Galarian, that's not necessarily the case because it does have an ongoing present as well. It just has such a deep history that that present is so well informed by it that it feels like this big world. As a great example, uh, there are three adventure paths that have significant connections to the Rune Lords currently. Rise of the Rune Lords, Shattered Star, and Return of the Rune Lords. These are pretty solidly focused on these Rune Lords who once ruled over Galarian with Iron Fists as the unquestioned rulers of the Inner Sea region, especially Northern Avestan, which is Galarian's answer to Europe. But... These figures don't just appear in these adventure paths. There are often mentions of the Rune Lords or references to the Rune Lords or things that had something to do with the Rune Lords appearing in other adventure paths. One of the Rune Lords even makes a personal appearance in a completely unrelated adventure path. Uh, spoiler? Is this a spoiler? Yeah, let's call it spoiler. Okay, this is a spoiler, so skip forward like 30 seconds from here. Uh... In the Wrath of the Righteous adventure path, um, if you're going to play that, this is where you would start skipping. In the Wrath of the Righteous adventure path, it is possible to meet one of the Rune Lords. Uh, he actually shows up in the flesh as a lich with a phylactery that's available and can be manipulated or even destroyed by the player characters if they so choose. He's a character they can interact with, defeat, or even ally themselves with. And it gives a great interconnection to the history of Galarian and makes you feel included in the setting. Okay, that's that's the end of the spoilerific part. So beyond that, the Rune Lords do appear mentioned in many of the other adventure paths, as do a lot of other things within the setting. Some minor things, some major things make recurrent appearances throughout the setting in interesting ways. For example, you can go to Taldor and see all of these warring houses. Or, if you want, you can play the adventure path that has this wonderful political intrigue there. If you like political intrigue, there's also the Curse of the Crimson Throne, which deals with all the current things that are going on. If politics isn't your thing and you really want to just be a mover and shaker, there's Hell's Rebels and Hell's Vengeance, wherein... You are in the great uh, great kingdom of Cheliax, either working for the establishment or against the establishment. And all this doesn't necessarily deal with the past. It deals very much with the present. But there are still massive things that go on in the history. There was a great, great whispering tyrant who was a lich who ruled over a large portion of the area of Ustalav, and he now has this tower that he's buried underneath don't worry he's dead nothing he, he's not coming back at all oh except that the 24th adventure path that's been announced but not yet released at all is the whispering tyrant and he comes back so they keep having these callbacks to the history of galarian and these things that are ongoing present day events and the timeline of galarian moves at one year per real world year so every year there are new events that take place in the world of galarian and you can be a part of those events by playing the adventure paths and pathfinder society games that are set in that particular year. And these even have consequences on the world. I mean, in most cases, it's assumed that the adventure path was
was completed with the player characters winning the adventure paths. In some cases, adventure paths will mention this in them. They'll say, oh, by the way, this plays off the events from this particular adventure path. So if those events happen differently in one of your campaigns you played with your group... Make a few changes to make it match up, but otherwise the assumption is this is what happened, you know, that, that the big bad was defeated, the world was saved, everything is good, but things might have been different, and if they were, you need to change things to make it match up. One of the things that I hate about a lot of established settings is very rarely will you be a mover or a shaker. In the Forgotten Realms, Elminster is one of the big names. Dritz Duerden is one of the big names. You are not one of the big names. In Greyhawk, there were many great mages in ages past. There was Bigby. There was Mordenkainen. There was Rigby. They were great adventurers who shaped the world. You are not one of them. In so many campaign settings, there were people that did great things. Or worse yet, are people who do great things and you're not one of them. In Pathfinder, almost all the adventure paths have major impacts on the story and make you feel like a mover and a shaker and it makes you feel like you are important. It it doesn't do the Final Fantasy thing of you are the only hope to save the entire world. Well, most of the time. Yeah, occasionally there is like some sort of prophecy or some sort of, you know secret or some sort of magic that makes you important to the outcome of this particular event. But in most cases, your adventurers becoming powerful, important people in the world. In Kingmaker, you set up an entire kingdom and become rulers of this otherwise untamed land, and you start out as humble adventurers, and this has long-lasting consequences. I believe it's even mentioned a few times in some of the other later adventure paths, like, oh yeah, by the way, that kingdom exists. This is what we've done as our placeholder if you didn't play this game, but if you played this game, it's that kingdom, you know, and that's a really cool thing. It makes you feel important to the setting. I love the fact that you are the players in this setting. You are the ones who are establishing the important things in the Pathfinder world and every adventure path has some notable impact on the Pathfinder world and carries consequences on beyond it. Even when the adventure paths aren't specifically about your characters. Uh, For instance, the Jade Regent is about uh, Emiko, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's her name. Um, And she is uh, a character who has discovered something about her past and needs to travel across the world with your help in order to fulfill her destiny. It's really about her destiny, but you're the ones who are important to the story. You're the ones are making it happen. It's you changing these major events as her friends and allies and companions throughout this adventure. In the Reign of Winter, likewise, you're the main characters, but the story is really about following in the trail of Baba Yaga and seeing what she is doing. And it's kind of interesting that it's Baba Yaga. There's only one Baba Yaga in the whole world, The Baba Yaga of Russian mythology? No, that's the Baba Yaga of Galarian. That's actually where I have a few nitpicks. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the Pathfinder setting. It is so wonderful and amazing. But it has some flaws. The 
a few of the big ones are, it feels like it kind of jumps the shark at a few points. Specifically, in Reign of Winter, there's a an adventure called Rasputin Must Die, where you go to real-world Russia during World War One. Uh, yeah, d- during the Russian Revolution, really. but During the Russian yeah. Revolution, and deal with Rasputin. Big name. You're there. You're being fired at by guns. You're dealing with mustard gas. You're in real-world Russia. And at that point, it... Why am I playing a fantasy game if we're playing in a dark, gritty Russia? I have to disagree with this a lot. I get what you're saying about it jumping the shark, but um, when that adventure was announced, I was actually furious. I was like, this is the stupidest idea they've ever had, and I was super angry about it, and I was going to cancel my subscription, but as we often do with subscriptions, I forgot and got the module in the mail. And I kind of rage read it, like, oh, I'm so angry about this. I'm going to read this so I can make myself angrier. And I didn't make myself angrier. I was actually like, this is this is incredible. I really want to run this. This is a great module. It's super interesting. It it doesn't it doesn't do the oh, what's this strange technology? It doesn't it doesn't give you the sense that the player characters are supposed to be mystified by the technology that they're facing. It's supposed to give you the sense that this is another alien world to them that has different rules and different equipment and different stuff than they're used to, and that they have to navigate this using their own understanding of uh, weapons and warfare and stuff. And it really comes off really cool to me, but uh, I do see where the issue is with... um, I kind of see where your issue is, because they have this amazing overarching setting with so much space in it that they could have easily plopped down this adventure somewhere in Pathfinder's world or within its or within its multiverse, because that was a multiverse hopping adventure. Um, you even went to the uh, Galarian's uh, equivalent of Venus in that. I can't remember the name of the planet, but it's mentioned in, it's mentioned in distant worlds and it's this lush, verdant jungle. And uh, spoiler question mark, uh, the elves are from there. They're aliens actually in Pathfinder, but that's not the point. Uh, and that's always been true, by the way. That was like... A design decision early on, but still, point is that there are lots of places in the Pathfinder world they could have probably squeezed this into without making it you travel to Earth. But I feel like you travel to Earth kind of has a cool edge to it. Well, I'm not saying that it's not cool. I mean, another one of the jumping the shark moments that I think that they've done was really cool. The introduction of the mythic rules, the whole mythic. Uh, adventure, The Wrath of the Righteous, I loved. It was over the top and wonderful, and you were these mega heroes by the end. But the mythic rules didn't didn't up the ante. It didn't make the game feel more epic. It just felt like you were playing with bigger numbers and breaking the rules. It it didn't feel it. Frankly, it didn't feel right. But I will give Pathfinder this. Every time that they do something like that, they move on. They continue building this world. They go, yeah, that was a thing. It happened. If you don't like it, you don't have to use it. At no point in time do you ever have to let your players know, yeah, there's an adventure where you could go and visit real-world Earth. That doesn't have to be a thing in your Pathfinder world. And I do like that. One of the big things that I don't like, though, 
is how married Galarian is to the Pathfinder rule set. By the time that 3.5 went to 4th edition, I was pretty done with 3.5. It was interesting, but broken. It felt over the top, and it felt like everyone that really was still into it was just into having these wonderfully broken loopholes and rules exploits. Myself included, of course, but... And when Pathfinder came around, they fixed so much of that. But they keep adding to the rules. They keep expanding on it, and it feels like the rules have hit this, I don't know, this maximum capacity, and it feels just so cumbersome. Yeah, which is which is something we've talked about with uh, rules creep, where rule systems get bigger and bigger and bigger until they're just this overwhelming mass of rules. And when you add that on top of the adventures, one thing that I've noticed in the Pathfinder adventure paths that kind of gives me a little bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for? It kind of knocks me out of feeling like they're an organic thing is stuff like when a new class is released, when they release the advanced player's guide or these other things, you suddenly start to see that class appear in the Pathfinder world. And in many cases, that class does the thing it does so well that it feels bizarre calling something that isn't a member of that class that class. For instance... Uh, there are a few witches early in the Pathfinder material before the witch class was released. But the witch class does things that are so iconically witchy, like having a vicious cackle or having a familiar that teaches them their spells or having a cauldron that they, they do magic in and things like that. All these witchy things that really make you think of witches when... You do them that this witch who's just a third level wizard feels kind of weird and misplaced. Likewise, alchemists that are experts before the alchemist class was introduced are just so underwhelming compared to these alchemists who have the alchemist class. That said, all of these problems will go away as soon as the Pathfinder 2nd Edition is released. And be replaced with brand new problems, I'm sure. But that's the nature of new editions of games. And one of the reasons we do new editions for games and that new editions for games come out is so that we can have kind of that clean slate experience of re reevaluating the material under a new set of constraints. One of my friends once compared Pathfinder to a Saturday morning action cartoon. Second edition was like an old, gritty, Dark Ages-style movie. Third edition was an action movie. And Pathfinder was an action cartoon. And if that doesn't seem right to you, I say that action cartoons are great. Who, who growing up didn't want to be He-Man? I know I did. I know I ran around going, I have the power! And... Just going into such a wonderfully out-there world and having it all make sense in a way is so wonderful. One last thing we have to admit about Galarian and the Pathfinder setting is that some of the material is a little bit hand-wavy. A great example is the Shackles Pirates, located in the southwestern portion of what's considered the Inner Sea region. Now, in real life, 
piracy in the real world was largely associated with the Caribbean. There was pirates all over the world, of course, but when we think of iconic pirates, we think of the trade triangle in the Caribbean. And the reason we think of this is because it was a great place to plunder. It was a place where these vulnerable ships carrying enormous amounts of treasure were constantly traveling to and from in massive distances in ways that were difficult to consistently and effectively defend. In Galarian, the pirates are in a southwestern corner of the map attached to an, a, attached to a orphaned colony of Cheliacs behind a large curtain of perpetual storms, and it's really hard to see why there'd be a lot of trade passing through that when there's better options for trading between virtually every country in the inner sea. So it's kind of a weird location for it, and it kind of takes a little hand-waving and possibly saying things like, well, that's kind of the pirate's base of operations, but I mean, they go all over the world, but this is like their base, like this is this is their Libertalia. And it kind of works, but it also kind of doesn't. Another one is, as we were saying, the Gothic setting. It's just kind of a Gothic setting for the purpose of being a Gothic setting. Now, you could say, well, there's a tower where the lich is buried, and therefore evil is radiating out of that. It's just southwest of the world wound, which has evil pouring into the world all the time. And so everything is slightly corrupted just by being nearby. But really, the answer is it's the gothic setting because we want to play a gothic game and have it in a gothic setting. So let's play the gothic setting. Yeah, and in the real world, gothic literature was not delegated to one specific geographic location. So honestly, it is kind of hand-wavy to have it all be in the same place for the purpose of just having a containment for it. But at the same time, it works within the setting. But it can draw away from the verisimilitude if you start asking too many questions. And a lot of times, you gotta, you gotta follow the MST3K mantra. If you're wondering how he eats and breathes and other science facts, just repeat to yourself, it's just a show, should really just relax. And that's part of it, is just being accepting of the things that make the setting work within the setting. So this has been our setting spotlight of Galarian. We really hope that we've given you an insight into why we like this setting so much. We have the fact that it has all these different areas that you can play in, and yet it's all interconnected. It has a history, it has a present, and it's just such a big world. And it's constantly evolving. Hopefully this has grabbed your attention and really made you at least think about playing in it the next chance you get. And it's a great example for other settings. It shows you what works and why it works and what doesn't work and why it wouldn't work. So, up next, we have kind of an episode that I'm surprised that it took us this long to get around to. It's Playing 101. Being a player, learning how to be a player. We tend to glamorize being a DM and talk about how much work it is and how difficult it is and how being a good DM is super satisfying. But honestly, being a player isn't as magically intuitive as we often want to believe. And there's a lot to it, especially if you want to be a good player. And I hope that you all want to be good players. So we're going to give you our insights into what makes you and will help make you a good player. So once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. The world is a book. 
and those who do not travel read only a page. St. Augustine Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.